Today we are continuing in our sermon series called The Hard Sayings of Jesus. And I'll tell you what, this is one that is definitely ranks up there. We know a lot about this one, but it ranks up there in the difficulty of what Jesus said. Today's sermon is entitled, Turn the Other Cheek. Turn the Other Cheek. It could also be entitled, Go the Extra Mile. Go the Extra Mile because it's going beyond what's expected. You know, we think about turning the other cheek, you know, a story uh, kind of popped up when I was looking and researching this sermon series. It was a story from a French publication, La Liberté, so who knows? I mean, when you hear the story, who knows how accurate, how legitimate this story is. But the story goes that there was a passerby on, you know, just kind of walking down the street who had to call the police because she saw a man ramming what looked to be a pretty new vehicle, pretty new car, into a rather old car on the side of the road, ramming this car into the side of the road. Well, the police showed up, and they said, what in the world's going on? They speak to the man. He said, he explains to them that both cars actually belong to him, the new car that he's ramming with and the old car that's being rammed. And he says, I am taking my revenge on this car Because over the years, it gave me so much trouble, this old car. I'm taking my revenge upon it because over the years, it just gave me so much trouble. Now, I think you question the validity of that that story just like I do. But it does illustrate what we're looking at today. When we are injured, when we are harmed, what is our opportunity there? Is our opportunity to do just as the world would do? Or is there a different opportunity? Truly a hard teaching of Jesus. So as we look throughout this sermon series, we've looked at three main questions. One today will be a little bit different, but it's this. What did Jesus mean? The one that's slightly different today, why such a difficult standard? Most of the time we say, why did he say it in such a provocative way? But related to that one, why such a difficult standard? Why did he set such a standard for us? And of course, what does this mean for me? The one that's going to be particularly difficult today, because we can all think, it probably comes to mind pretty quickly, bubbles to the surface pretty readily of a time where we have been harmed, where we have been injured. Most of the time, of course, probably not physically. Most of the time, it's going to be an injury of our character, an emotional injury. And we think, man, how I'd like to get back at that person, how I'd love to retaliate, how I'd love to have revenge. But we're going to look today, what did he mean? Why such a difficult standard? And then, of course, what does it mean for me? The very first one here today, what did Jesus mean? Let's first look at some of the verses here, verses 38 and 39. And uh, as we read this, it says um, in, in Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 and 39, he says, Jesus goes, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for the tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But I tell you, when you don't resist an evil person, whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn to him the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have the cloak as well. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from whom who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. So again, verses 38 and 39, when we look at the question, what did Jesus mean? Jesus first said, you have heard it said, referring to the law. The great Mosaic law given by God to Moses, to the people of Israel, which is a Mosaic law that rings throughout all time and eternity. So we have to ask ourselves the question, was Jesus contradicting the law? He's saying, you've heard it said in the law, but here I'm going to tell you something completely different. 
No, that's not it at all. In fact, when we look over just a few verses before this, in verse 17 of chapter 5, he says, Do not think that I've come to destroy the law. This is Jesus speaking again when he's questioned by the religious authorities of the day. Are you telling us, they would say, are you telling us that we need to contradict the very law of Moses that we have been living by for centuries? And Jesus says, don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I do not come to destroy, but I come to fulfill For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot nor tittle. It's almost like in modern fonts, if you can imagine the seraphs, the little little tails on the font, the little characters of the font. He says, not one jot or tittle will by any means pass away until all the law is fulfilled. He said, I didn't come to do away with it, but I came to fulfill it. And in many ways, he came to clarify in their immediate context. You see, it was really interesting over the centuries of Hebrew teaching, and as we've talked about many times before, one rabbi would comment on a certain section of the law, and then another rabbi would comment on what the rabbi said, and then another rabbi would comment on what the second rabbi said. Over time and through many of uh, instances of not practicing what they would see in the law, you had this sort of strange mix in Jesus' time from the religious leadership and the practice of the people, of they would not fulfill the heart of what the law was saying in many instances, and they were very lax, and they wouldn't fulfill it at all, and it definitely wouldn't hit the heart of what it meant. And then other instances, they would have all of these extra regulations that they would place upon what God said in his law, and it would stifle the people. And so you had this sort of great irony of on one hand, not at all fulfilling the very heart of the law, and then on the other, they just had these regulations upon regulations. And Jesus said, I didn't come to do away with the law, but I came to fulfill it. He came to clarify. And so he said, you've heard it said. He's not contradicting the quote that we actually do see from Exodus chapter 21 uh, in, in verse 24, but he came to clarify this. So he said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's exactly what he said. That's exactly what the law said. And by the way, Jesus Christ wasn't just a great teacher, as some in our world would like to say today, but he was the God-man. He was no ordinary man. He was the God-man. He was the second person of the Trinity. So the words of the law were his words. So he came to clarify those things. He said, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Do not resist them. You see, the eye for an eye teaching in the law was not given so we say, oh, yes, great, I can take revenge. It is a completely wrong thought process and a wrong perspective to say, okay, so you're telling me if they injure me, I can injure them back as long as I don't exceed this? Good, good. I can take my revenge upon them. That's not the perspective at all. The law was given, the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth law was given, so there would not be excessive punishment for anything that was done wrong. And it also prevented a sort of vigilante justice, quote-unquote justice, that, that would become a cancer in the land. But it is a completely wrong perspective, a nuance, but an important nuance at that, to think, okay, I can, I can take my revenge upon someone up to this level. There is always, and there always will be a place, and room for grace. You see, even in verse 37, he says again, do not resist an evil person. 
Now, this doesn't mean, and we can't push the meaning further beyond what Jesus is saying in immediate context to where we can't stand up for rights and privileges, and we can't stand on matters of principle when someone is doing evil, and we can't stand up in the face of evil dictators, and yes, we still have those in the 21st century, and we can't stand up even times of war to things that are are wrong and evil in our world. We don't push it beyond that. But what it means is that we cannot, uh, we cannot uh, act as the rest of the world acts. We must exhibit, when he says, to turn the other cheek, the follower of Jesus must exhibit a type of behavior that is wholly, completely different than the world at large. Completely different than the world at large. You know, sometimes when car manufacturers, they'll come out with new models. Sometimes it is extremely new model. I think about probably early to mid-90s when Dodge came out with a new Dodge Ram pickup, and it, and it actually did that thing where the, the hood kind of dropped over, you know? Some of you that know know what I'm talking about. It, instead of basically a straight curved hood, it kind of dropped over the sides, mirroring some of the old uh, trucks of the past. That was a completely different model change. That was a huge model change. But sometimes you'll see a new model come out from the manufacturer, and they may have just changed the grill a little bit, given you a few more paint options, maybe a different line here, this sort of thing. And it's really not a new model at all. It's just a few tweaks. You see, the follower of Jesus, we must be, and we are, as we are, a completely new model. We can't just be an improved model upon uh, humanity at large. But we must be in every way, in every way, a completely new model of person. Now, here's the thing. It's not a matter of trying to figure out how to do it on our own. It is a matter of living out our true identity. 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says this, very familiar verse to many of us. Love this verse. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and by the way, if you have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, If you have come to that place, as Jesus said, of repentance in your life and turning your life over to him as your Savior and your Lord, you are in Christ. And so he says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. Old things have passed away. The old things have passed away. And behold, new things have come. New things have come. So Jesus says that when, when that is our identity, when we are in Christ, when we come to faith in Christ... We are new, and so it's not a matter for us of trying to figure this out on our own and trying to make something of ourselves that's not there. It is living out our true new identity. So when we answer the question again, what did Jesus mean? Look at this. Look at this and write it down. Every occasion of harm, every occasion of harm, whether physical or social, is an opportunity for retaliation or grace. It's an opportunity for retaliation or grace. We can just do as anyone else would do. We can just uh, retaliate in kind as anyone else might do. Or we can be, as we're called to be, as a follower of Jesus, ones who, just as we have received grace, are also givers of grace. So he says, so we look at why did, what did he mean? What did Jesus mean by this? But we also look, why such a difficult Standard. Verse 40, if anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. This is a legal context. And kind of the closest example of this, the closest sort of one-to-one comparison for our day and age would be if someone has our jacket, if someone has sued us for our jacket, he says, go ahead and give them your shirt as well. 
you know, and you think to yourself, why in the world is this such a big deal? You know, if, if, this, this makes no sense to me. In our common context, that we would go to court over basically what amounts to a jacket and a shirt. Well, a couple of things. First of all, their legal system back then didn't have quite the same amount of red tape and hoops to jump through that ours do. And so it's much easier to go to a local magistrate, someone that would be a, supposedly be an objective arbiter, and to settle some of these disputes. Not only that, but many people in that culture, they didn't have two nickels to rub together, you know, as the old saying goes. They were poor, very poor. And this was a big deal. This sort, of a, this sort of an example that Jesus gave would truly ring with them. It would, it would ring very true to them. And, they would, and he would say, if someone sues you for something that is a very important possession, of, for someone that doesn't have a whole lot of possessions, he says, go beyond that and give them more. Go beyond that and give them more. So whatever it may be, whatever context you're in, whatever it may be where you feel it's been some sort of social harm or wrong that's been done to you, Jesus says, Go beyond it. If someone does you wrong, go beyond and give them more. Wow, this is a difficult standard. Verse 41 and 42 continue this. And he says, And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to whom who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn it away. So if someone compels you or forces you to go one mile, go with them too. Again, the context of this is if you remember the Hebrew people, the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel at the time, was really a vassal state for who was truly ruling the world at the time, which was the Roman Empire. And so the Roman Empire had conquered many of these lands and nations all over the known world, all over the globe at the time, and they had basically what amounted to puppet governments and these vassal states. And so in each of these places, there would be outposts of the Roman army to keep the Pax Romana or the Peace of Rome to basically keep everything under control. And so there would be Roman soldiers throughout all of these lands, and it was no different in the land of Israel. And what it would happen is any citizen of that vassal state, if a Roman soldier were to approach them and say, help me carry my burden, whatever it may be, weaponry, supplies, carry with me my burden, they had to drop what they were doing at that moment, drop what they were doing, and assist in that burden, and they were required to do it for one mile. So Jesus says, if that happens, giving it as a real-life illustration. So again, for the people that were there listening or us that are listening 2,000 years, ago, 2000 years later, put ourselves in that context. And he says, and that's where we get the, the, the saying from, go the extra mile. Do more than what's required of you. Go beyond what's required. You see, here's the thing. Whenever we're injured, whenever harm is done to us, whether, again, it's physically, probably won't happen to us. Most of the time, it's going to be socially, emotionally, that sort of thing, vocationally. Whatever it may be, when harm is done to us, anyone can bite their tongue, right? Anyone can bite their tongue for whatever reason. Maybe they're just too scared to say something. Maybe if it's in a context at work, they say it's not worth going through all the red tape of speaking to HR about it. Maybe it's a, it's a boss that's done them wrong, and they want to bite their tongue because you know, they want to hold their job, and this person's unreasonable. Whatever it may be, you can fill in the blank of the context. Many people can just bite their, bite their tongue about it. But Jesus says, we must do more. He says, we must positively work for the good of those who are set against us. Man, that's pretty tough. We must positively work for the good of those that are set against us. So the question then becomes, why? Why? Why such a difficult standard? 
Well, first of all, it's about our commission. We have been commissioned with the great commission of making disciples. If we flip back over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and we read that we were a new creation, we are a new creature in Christ. A few verses later, it says this in verse 20. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us this, pleading through us this very thing, that we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. You realize the weight of that? So he says that believers in Jesus Christ, we are ambassadors of our great King Jesus. We go out into the world around us, and when we speak to others about Christ, it's as if God is speaking through us, and he's imploring through us for those that are lost to be reconciled, to be brought back together, to, to be brought back to God. That is what the cross of Christ was all about. Our sin has separated us from God, but God sent Jesus, his son, to die upon the cross that mankind, if they repent and believe in him, might be brought back together, might be reconciled unto God. So it's all about our commission. We're ambassadors. You see, when an ambassador of a country is given a commission, as an ambassador to another foreign country, they are to be a perfect representation of the people and the sovereign or the head of state that they represent. So when they go to this country, they are to be a representation of the country and whatever head of state it is that they're representing to the second country. You see, in the same way as ambassadors of Jesus Christ, when we go out into the world, we are to be a representation of Christ. He is in us. The old is gone. The new has come. And there should be a reflection of Christ in our lives. We're called to be holy as he was holy. Yes, God knows in reality, in day-to-day -day life, even though our true identity in Christ is holiness, is righteousness, is perfection. Again, according to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he knows daily, practically, we won't live it out perfectly. But it is to be what we are to strive towards as an ambassador of Christ to be a very perfect representation of Jesus Christ. So why our commission? Also, why? Again, why such a standard? Why? Because of the cross. When we think about the cross of Christ, again, as that great old song, I love it, says this, that we owed a debt we could not pay. We owed a debt that we could not pay. It was our sin debt. And he paid, Jesus paid on the cross, a debt that he did not owe. It was our debt because of our sin in our lives. It's what separated us from Christ. But we couldn't pay it. There was nothing that we could do. We could not possibly live a good enough life to make up to make up the sin in our lives. We can't possibly live a good enough life so that we might earn forgiveness unto ourselves. But Jesus Christ paid a debt that he did not owe. He paid it on our behalf for the glory of God and his love for us. So when we think about that cross, how can we look at the cross of Christ? How can we look at the cross of Christ and not be willing to suffer injury, injury for his cause? How can we look at his cross and say, I'm not willing to do it? When he took the beating, he took the cross on our behalf. How can we look at that cross and say, we're not willing to do likewise? Why? Not only our commission in the cross, but also because God's grace. God's grace. Listen to this. Write this down again. We preach the gospel when we react with grace. We preach the gospel when we react with grace. 
When we do something wholly different, completely different than the way the world would react, when we react with grace instead of retaliation, when we react when we've been harmed with grace instead of revenge, we preach the gospel. We say there is something completely different. We follow one. We follow King Jesus who did not give us what we deserved. Because of our sin, we deserve death, eternal death, separation from him. But because of his grace, we, get, we were given salvation. Why? Because of his grace. Why? Also because of our witness. Because of our witness. Again, the sort of behavior like biting our tongue, that sort of thing that really anybody can do, expected behavior will not move the needle one bit in the lost world. When we have an opportunity to live a life of witness before someone, hopefully to have the opportunity to verbally witness to them, just doing what's expected in a situation, what anybody could do in the world, expected behavior will not move the needle in that person's life one little bit. Listen to this. Write it down again here. Only radical behavior, only radical behavior will cause the world to take notice. Only radical behavior will cause the world to step up who's, who's dealing with misery and sorrow in their lives, even if they're not honest with themselves, even if, again, it's one of those times where that sadness doesn't creep in, that emptiness, that longing, that lack of something in their life that we know can only be filled by Jesus, even if they don't realize it until they're quiet at night, they've turned off every piece of electronics, they're not in front of a screen or media, and they just have that quiet, and that, 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 that dread, that sorrow creeps into their life. Maybe it's only then. But it's something that the whole world is missing, and we know it to be Jesus Christ. Guess what? Guess what? Only radical behavior will cause the world to take notice. Only radical behavior, the type of stuff that the world does not expect, will help people to take notice, and then we can have the opportunity to say, you know why I did that? Because of Jesus. Let me tell you about him. Let me tell you about why you need to know him. Let me tell you about why his story of sacrifice for you is the greatest news the world can hear. So why? Our commission, the cross, God's grace, our witness. And then finally, what does this mean for me? What did Jesus mean? Why such a difficult standard? And then what does this mean for me? You know, this is one of those messages that really pokes at us. The you know, truth of God's word really pokes at us and convicts us. And we see it here too when we think about it putting in our own lives here. What does this mean for me? First of all, when we think in context of whatever sort of of situation, whatever sort of conflict you have, whether it be at work, whether it be at home, whatever it may be, we can all think of conflict that's happening now has just finished bubbling at the surface or is soon to bubble up. We know it is part of humanity. It's part of the human story that there will be conflict The opportunity that we have as believers, again, it is for retaliation or for grace. Look at this. Battles persist because of initiation, but they also persist because of retaliation. You know, I asked my kids if I could uh, use them as an illustration today. You know, you try to get pretty good about that as a pastor. You know, my kids, probably not like, unlike many kids, they'll get in fights, right? They'll get in fights. And so some of the fights, the arguments happen because someone has initiated something, but they also continue because of retaliation. We know this example from sports as well. It's always who gets caught by the referee and gets the technical foul. Is it the first person? It's the second person, right? The second person that pushes back and shoves back. That's always the one that gets caught. Fights continue. Conflicts continue because of initiation, but also because of 
retaliation. And listen to this one too. Retaliation is a trap that catches the hunter's foot. Retaliation is a trap that catches the hunter's foot. I came up with that all by myself, by the way. I'm like ready to write poetry. Yes, thank you very much. Thank you, thank you. You know, I'm ready to write some poetry. But you know, you do think about it. It's kind of an illustration within a statement there. If a hunter sets a trap and he steps right in and he snared his own foot, right? When we look to react with revenge and retaliation when someone has done us harm, the person that ends up suffering the most is the person. It's us. It is the one who is seeking to retaliate. Here's a great story. I want to put a picture up here. And this is a picture actually from what's known as a spite house in Boston. And the story I'm going to tell you is actually from New York. But uh, this is the best picture of one of these spite houses. You see examples of this really all over the world. So the story that, that I'm going to tell you, this is one again of Boston, but a, a famous spite house, maybe the most famous spite house of all, is one in New York owned by a man named Joseph Richardson. He was a New York millionaire that owned this narrow strip of land, and just like this picture, there were landowners on either side of it. And so he sought to sell this piece of property to one of the two. And what he thought was a reasonable price for the land, both of them refused to give it to him. And so what did he do? What did he do? Out of spite, he built a five-foot-wide home between two other buildings, a five-foot-wide home that completely disfigured the block. Well, here's the thing. He built that home, and he thought, oh, I have my revenge and my retaliation. But he, in the end, was the one that was trapped in his own five-foot-wide prison. This is where he lived. And so he was the one, in the end, that was trapped by his own revenge. So when we come and when we think about those conflicts that we have in life, when we think about those rubs that, 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 that happen in life because it's people, it's humanity interacting with one another, our first thought cannot be, our first thought cannot be, what will I lose? Our first thought cannot be, what will I lose? Your first thought must be this, will my actions lead someone closer to Christ? Will my actions lead someone closer to Christ? You want to be freed from what you believe to be a cycle of retaliation? You want to be freed from what you believe to be someone always getting the better of you? You think about it in that perspective. Put that on the screen for me, guys, if you would do that for them to write it down. Our first thought cannot be, what will we lose? Your first thought must be, will my actions lead this person closer to Christ? Will my actions lead this person closer to Christ? And so finally, let us think about this as we again remember, what did he mean? Every occasion of harm has an opportunity for grace or retaliation. Why such a difficult standard? Because the commission, the cross, his grace, our witness. We have those opportunities. We have conflict in life. It will continue because we live in a sinful world and we are sinful people. What what are the opportunities in your life? Fill in the blank for whatever it may be. What are those opportunities in your life for retaliation or grace? And you ask yourself, how am I going to deal with them? You answer with this question. You want to be freed from those things? Your first thought must be, will my actions lead this person closer to Christ? That is how we live Christ-like. That is how we move the needle in our world. That is how we're freed from retaliation. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray. We, we have endless examples of how this teaching of Jesus applies to our life. We don't have to think long and hard. We don't think very hard at all before we remember a time in which there's been a conflict in our life. 
Maybe it's something that's brewing right now. Maybe it's something that's bubbling that is soon to be a conflict. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage. That's what it takes. It is a matter of faith and trust. It's a matter of saying, having the courage to trust you to say, man, my feelings tell me to retaliate. The world tells me to retaliate. But Lord, you tell me in your word to not retaliate, but to show them grace. God, that's tough. We know that's tough. Lord, you know that's tough. But we know, first of all, in our own lives, for our own good, that is the only way that we will be freed from an endless cycle of bitterness. And Lord, we know that that's the only thing in our world that will move the needle of your witness. Radical behavior just like that is what will make the world sit up and take notice. So Lord, not only for a freedom from our bitterness, but also for our witness in the world, would you give us in those times that we can think about in our lives, those times that we know, those instances that we know we can think of right now of conflict in our life, Lord, would you give us the courage that we need and the trust in you, even help us and strengthen our faith that we may do it your way and not our own. In Christ's name we pray.